0: I'm not sure if I've ever shared here before how it is that I got into the track of doing ministry. I've probably shared a little story here or there in the past that might kind of be pointing towards that. But I know that in my lifetime, there are really three main points at which God worked and did something that put me onto the track towards becoming a pastor and eventually getting out here to Utah And those were significant points for me. But perhaps the most significant of those events that took place was right after I had returned back from my second deployment to Iraq as a Marine. I had uh, become a believer just before that second deployment. And I was looking for a new church home in the western suburbs of Chicago. A few different friends had said, Hey, you should check out this church. It's called... uh, At the time, it was Evangelical Free Church of Naperville, Illinois, and I thought, go check it out. It was very close to the town where I grew up, and I had an idea of what it was. I'd been there a couple times when I was younger, and I said, I'll go, I'll check it out. I showed up, and I sat up in the balcony in the far back of the the place. I said, I kind of wanted an easy in and easy out, you know? If if you're visiting here today, you might know what I'm talking about. You'd like to kind of sneak in, sneak out. You'd probably leave before the last song's over kind of thing, and that was the plan, that's what I had in mind. So I got up in the balcony. I was just kind of listening, observing, soaking it all in, and not just enjoying being part of worship and part of church family, which is wonderful, but I was really doing it with a kind of scrutiny. All right, is this, Lord, is this the kind of church home you want for me? Is this, there's something here that's supposed to stick it out? Is this for my next chapter? Well, at that time, I was in my, uh, I just finished my second year of school uh, for architecture, And that's what my plan had been. I'd I'd completed up my time in the Marines. Uh, I was just in some reserve time at that point. I um, had been doing schooling between deployments and then after the second deployment. And so I had a tract in mind. I knew what I was going to go do. I was going to be an architect. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. I was aiming down that way. And I'd known that the entire time that I had been out doing things in the military, especially God had been preparing me for his purpose, for whatever he wanted me to do. And I thought I was on that track. So I'm sitting up there in the balcony, and I look down, and I'm enjoying the worship that morning, and there was one guy who was just playing the piano. He was just really rocking the piano on the worship team, and I was like, man, that sounds amazing. That's really cool. I I really love the piano. I, i try to kind of tinker around since I was a kid with the piano. It's been my favorite instrument. I even had a CD that was given to me when I was about 15 years old by a friend who just gave it to me. I think it gave it to our family, like in a little gift basket for Christmas, and I yanked it out of there, and I listened to it. It was just a guy playing piano. It was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard. In fact, I listened to that CD on repeat to the point that it was destroyed. I actually had to uh, reach out to my mother from overseas in the military, ask her to send me another one, so she hunted one down and sent it back to me so I could have it to listen to while I was out, and... I went to almost 20, uh, more than 20 different countries in the Marines, and I listened to this everywhere that I went, and it was just kind of like satisfying to the soul. I loved hearing it. It was a, it was a CD written by a, a young pianist by the name of Michael Thompson. So I'm sitting up there looking down and I'm listening to the piano, like, man, I just love it. I'm engaging with the hearing all of it. And during that exact sermon, the pastor wanted to use an illustration of how God's mighty works are masterful compared to ours. We might try to do something good, something helpful, but when God acts, it is supernatural. It is powerful beyond measure. And so, the pastor, as an illustration, sat behind the piano and started playing "Amazing Grace." Dun 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 dun. He says, "So that's that's me playing piano." And he goes, oh, I, want, I want to ask our, our worship leader up here, Michael Thompson, come on up here. And I was like, I, I, don't, I, I know that name. And he stood up there, and he says, Michael, play Amazing Grace. And he just goes, and just like griffed into it. It's a beautiful, it's filled the whole auditorium with this grand piano playing. And he goes, these are the hands of a master. These are the hands of an amateur. And he's showing the difference when God works into something and when we're just trying to make it ourselves. And I was like, I know that guy. I know that name. It was so significant to me in this really incredible way. So I I ran down right after the service was over. My plan was to exit. And I had to, now because I was sitting in the back, I had to fight through the traffic to get to the front, to get to this guy before he kind of went off stage into the back. And so I bought him, I just needed to meet you. I, I, I know your name. I've listened to your CDs. And he was just gracious. Oh, that's so great. And for some reason, I can only describe as God working. He said, do you do music? I was like, well, I, I mean, I play a little guitar. I, do play. I didn't even say I played piano in front of that guy. I was like, I play a little guitar. I like to sing a little bit. He goes like, you should be on the worship team. I was like, oh. And he goes, why don't you come back next week and you know we'll have you kind of do a little tryout and we'll talk about your faith and background and all this. We'll just kind of talk to you about doing this, if it's something that you might enjoy. I was like, okay. So I came back the next week, got to meet him. He invited me on the worship team about a month after that point. And several months later... He left that church to go start a ministry that reaches the nations with music and media. Um, and he asked for me to take his place as the worship director at that church. Of course, I had to pause and I had to go, I, I have a track. It's going this way. I've got it all figured out. I've got it planned. I had just met Laura after I was a worship uh, on the worship team at this church. I had to go back to her and be like, Uh, hey, hey, uh, Laura, there's change of plans if you want to get off this crazy train right now. (laughs) This is a time we've only known each other for about a month, but I'm not going down the path I thought I was going down. I look back to that event, it gets me teary-eyed. I still get to, I'm in in ministry right now with this same Michael. I talked to him, this is last week, about ministry and reaching lost people. I just think about how many times in life there's a almost serendipitous event where something will happen that is so monumental, it changes the course of your entire life. And when, when you look back to it, you're like, if that event didn't happen, where would I be? You, you know what I mean? You all have those kind of stories. You have those moments that were just utterly crucial for where you are. There's no way a story about your life could be written without that having a chapter. These pivotal moments happen all the time. And oftentimes they happen and they're totally unforeseen. You just walk right into it. You met the person you're going to marry on a whim. Whoa. You never could have replicated it again. You, you met a person who you're going to eventually go into business with or, or some, some, something you saw or interacted with brought you to the idea, maybe I should move to this area and do that job or go down that track. And something changes everything. The unforeseens. But sometimes those pivotal events are foreseen. And what I mean by that is the times when you call up all your friends and family and you ask them to pray for you because I'm going in for this job interview and if I get it, it's going to go, Whoa. my life is going to go that way. Maybe you're a young person you're trying to get into a college and you could either go to a college way over there in that kind of area and that kind of place with those kind of people or you can go to a college way over here in that kind of area that kind of place with those people And you know you're either going to go right or left. And it's going to go crazy. It's going to totally change your life. And you're praying, Lord, I'm putting out my applications. I'm just praying that I get into one of these two colleges. And you see it coming. You pray for it. Maybe you're you're going into a doctor's office and you're waiting for a diagnosis. You're calling everybody, oh, pray. Because whatever I find out in here might be life-changing to me. God is in control of those moments. And he means good for us in and through them. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious about anything. You're like, wait, wait, anything? He says, no no, man, by, by being anxious can add even a single hour to the span of his life. God's got this. How can he say that? because God is there. He's in the details. He's he's with you. He knows your story. He's directing, guiding, leading us. We're not just spinning in the cosmos hoping in nothing. We know we have a good God watching out for us. Even in those pivotal moments upon which everything hinges. Our text today takes us to one of the most famous such pivotal incidents in the Bible. This is the story of Ruth, and we're at the passage in chapter 3 where we're going to have a significant event take place where everything's going to change, not just for Ruth, not just for her mother-in-law, Naomi, but for the entire course of redemptive history, because as we've said since the beginning, Ruth is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, and this is significant to us. Now, this passage has tons of speculation around it. A lot of people have wondered what to do, not just with the whole book of Ruth, but this very specific passage. What is going on in this scene? So here are my two hopes for today, and then we're going to read the text and pray and, and dive in. My two hopes. First hope today is that I can explain this, adequately explain to you what is happening in this famous scene. If you were to walk out just having a better understanding of what happened here, that in the future when you go through it in a Bible study or in your own personal time, walk through it, or dealing with someone who might have some questions about it, or you hear speculation about it, that you might be well-served to go, ah, wait, hold on, I have a familiarity with this. That's my first hope. My second hope is that this story would encourage you to trust in God in the most critical and pivotal moments of your life with those two hopes, I want to read the passage, pray, and go back through it. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 21. I landed at 20 last week. and We're going to get almost all the way through chapter 3. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, Lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother in law. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, "'Who are you?' And she answered, "'I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer.' And he said, "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich.' Lord, I have no idea what pivotal moments may be facing the people who are hearing this today. You alone know these things. Lord, there may be some who do have some expectation of very important meetings or moments in this upcoming week or the next few weeks, perhaps. God, I pray that you would help us to lean into you, to trust you in these critical times. Father, enlighten our heart, the, uh, the eyes of our heart as we read this passage right now. Help us to be well served by the teaching that I'm about to deliver, Lord. Keep me from error. Let us be served in such a way that it leads us to love and honor you more because of the things that are written in the book of Ruth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. You'll remember from last week that this is the point in the passage where, right after Ruth, receiving great blessing from Boaz, goes and tells Naomi about what happened. And Naomi realizes Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, he's a near relative. And Ruth continues telling what Boaz had blessed her with. He says, he's blessed me. But it wasn't just Ruth who's been blessed. Notice the text here. And Ruth the Moabite said these things. This is significant to us because it reminds us that Ruth, right in the midst of hearing that we have a kinsman redeemer, somebody who might be able to swoop in and save the day, Right on the heels of that statement in verse 20, it says that Ruth is a Moabite. It reminds us that she is an alien. She's not an Israelite. Not only do the laws that apply to Israelites not necessarily apply to non-Israelites, at least in the eyes of the people, but additionally, the kinds of protections that were expected for fellow Israelites might not be extended to those from enemy nations. In fact, that's precisely what Naomi is worried about, and she makes claim of that in the next verse. She says, go out with his young women because you could be assaulted, lest lest in another field you be assaulted. Think about that. When Ruth left in the morning, this was the first day out working, Naomi didn't know where she was going to go, and in her mind, she knew it was a high likelihood that Ruth could be assaulted. And so she waits until evening, perhaps worried and wondering, oh, what's going to happen to Ruth? Lord, take care of Ruth. Watch over her. Let her not be assaulted. Let not these bad things happen. She waits all day. But the news, when she returns, is about as good as she possibly could have hoped for. God is good. He's looking out for these women. Verse 23 says, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now with this statement that concludes this chapter, the narrator speeds up about seven weeks worth of time. In past weeks we revisited this, that the barley harvest started when they first arrived back from Moab. And now seven weeks are going to go on until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Those two harvests would have lasted about that long. Now, it's not a stretch to assume that during that time, Ruth and Naomi get to know more about Boaz and perhaps even vice versa. We don't have any narration about that, but it seems likely that they would get to know a little bit more about his character. And the chapter ends fast forwarding seven week period of time. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So as Ruth is working in the fields to provide for her and for her mother-in-law, Naomi's burden for Ruth's welfare grows. She asks for rest. She says, should, should I not seek rest for you? It's an obvious rhetorical question. She means yes. Shouldn't I seek rest? This is the same word in Hebrew and the same idea that she uses back in Chapter 1, verse 9, where Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah that they should go back. They should go, fa- go back to their parents' homes, their home of their mother, and find a new husband. It says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Rest here, then, means marriage, home, family, future. Quite specifically, it means the security that a woman in that day could only expect to find in a good marriage. When she says rest, that's what she means. She doesn't just mean stop working. She means to find security. Ruth has been an extraordinary blessing on Naomi. Every good thing that Naomi has up until this point in the story comes through and because of Ruth. All of it. But Naomi is concerned for Ruth's well being. I want to make two notes on this idea. First, there's a note for mother in laws, mothers in law or those who may someday be one. There's a mother-in-law stigma, isn't there? Kind of idea that when you marry into a family, you marry to the, 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 the family of your spouse, and so you inherit a mother-in-law. It's kind of a worldly thinking about this, that there should be some kind of conflict, and there should be some kinds of difficulty, and there should be abrasion in that kind of relationship, and it sticks. Think about these things. It's wonderful to see examples of this kind of thing in the Bible where we can tell mothers-in-law, be like Naomi. She has fully embraced Ruth as her daughter, right in there. She's, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? She's she's owning that relationship. They They are bonded, they are tight, and she cares about what's good for Naomi, for Ruth. No one in this story has endured more loss than Naomi has. No one. Yet she concerns herself with what is best for her daughter. She's not thinking about, well, mm, I need something good. How can I be best suited? How can I be best cared for? She said, you need something good. I want you to have rest. This reminds me of the Christian ethic. We see all over the New Testament. It's very poignantly stated in Philippians 2. Look at this, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. This is just Christian living. Do nothing from rival- rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others naomi is a great example of this even long before jesus would walk on this earth jesus even says in john 13 all people are going to know that we're christians by the way that we love one another My point in pausing on this right now is let's break those stigmas as believers. Let's let's refuse to settle for the fact that we might have a bad relationship with family in certain contexts. For those who have young kids and are thinking someday you're going to marry those kids off and you're going to have in-laws, set your heart and your mind now. I don't have to be like the world. I want to be be a kind of in-law who seeks the best for my kids and just loves them and wants good for them. A note for mothers in law. It's also quick, I want to make a note here for husbands. Don't underestimate the kind of security, hope, good that you provide for your wife and kids. Rest. I'm sure that even in Ruth's day, there were deadbeat husbands, but it's expected that a husband would provide well for his wife. She doesn't even qualify it. Oh, that you would find a husband. Oh, that you'd go find someone else, that you would find rest. That's the expectation be provided for you be taken care of men and women for that matter when you are helping your daughters seek a good man you want one day to be able to unite her with someone who you know will take joy in providing rest rest for her regarding boys train your boys to own this responsibility to take a joy this is an expectation that we provide and sacrifice to serve that the women in our lives would know and feel a sanctuary in the home and a, I'm not alone, I'm cared for, I'm being watched over. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So first, Naomi makes comment that, okay, he's a relative, he's a, he's a redeemer type, he's a near relative to us. You know those women you're hanging out with? That's Boaz's servants. You're amongst them. And tonight, this very night, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. A threshing floor would be a hard spot of ground. It could be packed dirt. It's likely that it would be on stone Uh, These were almost always on the east side of the city in Israel because of the prevailing uh, uh, Mediterranean winds that would come from the west. And so they'd usually do them on the east side of the city where there's the open fields. And uh, they would literally stand on these hardened grounds, and they'd beat out the barley, beat out the wheat, and then they would lift with the winnowing fork what was left, and the good grain would fall to the ground, and the wind would carry away the chaff. We see this kind of idea being talked about even in Jesus' day. Naomi gives her instructions here. I want to make several observations. This is kind of the, this is the instructions for this pivotal event. I was talking from the beginning, this pivotal moment. Something is about to happen, one way or the other. It's either going to go really well for these women, or probably really poorly from this night forward. And this is the instruction that Naomi gives to Ruth. Let's walk through those. I'm going to give you just a few observations. Just four, four observations first. First, she tells her to clean up. Wash, therefore. Anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. For, for those of you who are, are, are thinking, when you see the word anoint, your ears perk up. There's one really critical word for anoint or anointed one or being anointed in the Old Testament. It's Meshiah. It's the same word that we get Messiah from. Talking about an anointed one. Pause. That's not this word here. This word here for anoint explicitly refers to an a olive oil-based perfume. It's a, it's a kind of a hygiene. It's like, it's like put on deodorant. Make sure you don't stink. It's that kind of language. When this word is used in the context of washing like that, it's that kind of anointing. It's, it's cleaning up, getting out of the shower, making sure you don't stink to go do what's happening next. Now, with this language... It may even be that Naomi is not concerned with Ruth looking attractive for Boaz. In fact, it's going to happen in the middle of the night. This isn't quite like you put on makeup, make yourself look beautiful. It's not that kind of language being used of here. It's oftentimes used of men. She's actually, perhaps, telling Ruth that it's time to conclude her period of mourning for her deceased husband. We can't know this for certain. But this language is used several times in the Bible to refer to people ending a period of grieving. Time to get up, wash up, move on. Move on with your life now. Now, the place we see this most explicit, the same exact order and the same exact wording is in 2 Samuel 12, 20. This is after David had sinned with Bathsheba. He had taken her, even though she belonged to another man. Uh, She had gotten pregnant by him, had a baby, and the baby is getting sick. He thinks it's going to die. He's heard from God the baby's going to die, and he's crying out to the Lord, don't take the baby. And he goes into this period of grieving and mourning as he's crying out to God, maybe God will just have mercy and let this baby live. And so he puts on mourning clothes, he doesn't wash, he doesn't perfume or anoint himself, doesn't eat, and the baby does die. And immediately after that happens, it says, Then David arose from the earth and washed, same thing, and anointed himself, same word there, and changed his clothes. This is the exact same word as putting on the cloak we see in Ruth. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. So he concluded a period of mourning, got up, refreshed, and went to worship and eat. It's that kind of idea. So the first observation is that she's told, clean up, get up and go. The second observation is go down and wait. Remember the wording there. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. It's likely that he's out there with a bunch of the men who are working in, in the fields, working till the wee hours of the, uh, the, the night, perhaps even late, late, late after the sun is starting to go down, the nice cool weather uh, with the winds nice and soft without blowing everything away. Could be out there with the guys even having a meal together. And she says, go down there, but don't make yourself known to the man until after he's finished eating and drinking. So meal done, time to sleep. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. So just, just you, you check out where he's going. So what I'm imagining here, and there's no way to know exactly how this worked out. The language doesn't tell us. But I'm imagining guys eating together around a campfire. There, they finished the, the meal at the end of the day. They all kind of go find a spot to go uh, to go eat or go, go lay down. If you've ever had a camp night with guys, they don't go cuddle. <laughs> so we all kind of go off to our own place and lay down to sleep. So you, you watch carefully in the dark of the night. Where, where did Boaz go? He, oh, he's, the one, he's over there at the end of the heap of grain. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. So here's the third observation. She tells him to go uncover his feet and lie down. There could be feet legs. It's that kind of thing together. And the Daniel statue uh, that we hear about is it's actually talking about that same part of the, of the legs, l- lower legs and feet. No matter how you cut it. This is very forward. This is very intimate. It's even kind of provocative almost. Like, oh my goodness, she's a servant. She doesn't know him. She, what's, what's, I mean, she only knows him by, by the one interaction we know she's already had. That's very weird for her to come do this. Fourth observation he will tell you what to do. I'll go back a show Go and uncover his feet and lie down. Look at the very last line. And he will tell you what to do. That's a huge assumption. Isn't that amazing? Consider the irregularities of the situation real quick. A woman is proposing to a man. That's what we're going to see is what's taking place here. Remember, she says, you need a redeemer. You need to find rest. You need to find a husband. That's, what the, that's why... Ruth is being sent here by Naomi. So first, it's a woman initiating this with a man. That's the first thing that's weird. The second thing that's weird is it's a younger person proposing to an older person. He's likely a generation ahead of her. He calls her daughter over and over and over again. A field worker proposing to the field owner. It's like an employee appealing to a boss. And an alien proposing to a native. No matter how you cut it, all these things make it really a unique, weird situation. What's going down? Either Naomi is demonstrating great confidence in Boaz's character, great faith in God, or both. Now here's the question that might be helpful for us to consider. Are we to see anything sexual going on here? Does that not come to everyone's mind? Are you not like, wait a minute? If someone were to tell you this story, modern day, so I snuck into his house, I pulled his covers back, and he woke up, I was laying there, you'd be like, what else? Right? I have have this question. Is there anything sexual going on? The answer, I, I don't think so. I want to give you seven reasons why I don't think that's the case. And here's why I think this is kind of important. There are people who will look back at even just descriptive stories in the Bible. This might be one of them. Try to put things in there that aren't in order to approve of wrong behavior in the future. So in other words, if a person sees Naomi, a virtuous woman, tells Ruth to go sleep with this man she's not married to, well, then maybe it's okay to go do that today. That, you get, that, get what I'm thinking? That's how people sometimes think. And so we need to ask the question, well, before we go anywhere, it's not prescriptive, nothing's being prescribed, but also, is there anything weird going on like this? Is there anything sexual happening? I don't think so. Here's seven reasons why. First, her washing, anointing, getting dressed does not imply anything sexual. The Bible does certainly have language all over other places in the Bible, language, Hebrew language, of how a prostitute prepares herself to seduce a man. We know that language, and that is not used here. It's the kind of language used of men, used of, used of David when he gets up after being, uh, after being sad, uh, after, being, after being in a period of grief. It's that their soldiers defeated in battle think they're going to die, and they're told to get up and wash and anoint. It's it's that kind of language. It's not sexual in nature. The second reason, again, another language thing here, the language of uncovering Boaz's feet is carefully used to avoid sexual connotation. Now, there, there are places in the Old Testament where the idea of feet and covering or uncovering can both be used as an innuendo, or as a euphemism for sexual conduct. But the way the words are used here in Hebrew are very intentional to try to omit that as being a possibility while still telling what actually happened. Okay? It might be the equivalent of, if someone were to say, so she uncovered his lower parts. Well, feet would be part of that. But to say his feet, make it very clear in English that we're talking about not something else, right? So the Hebrew language here is intentional, to avoid sexual connotations. Those first two things. Number three, Boaz is portrayed throughout this whole story as a virtuous man. He's called worthy back in chapter two, and all the people know this of him. He's a, he's a Yahweh worshiper. It would seem out of character for a man who the whole story is supposed to be a worthy man, is all of a sudden now gonna sleep with some woman who's not married to. Number four, Ruth and Naomi throughout, after chapter one and beyond, are certainly portrayed as virtuous. Women, she's about to be called a worthy woman. The whole town knows she's a virtuous and worthy woman. Number five, Naomi is most concerned with the welfare of Ruth. Right? Isn't that what she just said? I want it to be well with you. Well, she wanted it to be well with her. She would never have told her to go do something that could be made her seen as a prostitute. Because if Boaz was worthy, he would have spurned her advances. She might have lost her job. She might have lost her head. She could have been in big trouble. Very least, other men might have gotten a chance to know about this and then pursued her in that same way, and it would have gone really bad for her if Boaz spurned her advance, if that's what was being said. But even if Boaz did not act in a worthy manner and slept with her, that would have gone even worse for her. He would have used her and sent her away. Nothing good would have come from her if that was the case. Sixth reason why I don't think this is sexual. Naomi is aiming at securing marriage. Not a one-time stand. It's not like, hey, go sleep with this guy. It's go. Find somebody with whom you can have rest all of your days. And last, I think the most clear is Boaz's response, as we'll see shortly, makes it clear that he immediately understands the symbolism of her request as a proposal for marriage and not as... An invitation to sexual conduct. Nevertheless, Naomi asks Ruth to make a very risky move here, doesn't she? She instructs Ruth to initiate this proposal. This is super atypical to happen because she's so much younger than Boaz, probably young enough to be his daughter. It would have been unlikely and perhaps even imprudent for him to propose marriage to her. So some commentators have noticed it took seven weeks and he never did anything. So they're like, all right, he's not going to act. We're going we're to do this. He's not doing anything. He's dragging his feet. We'll we'll initiate. He'd only known her for a few weeks. Also, she's probably very recently widowed. Even if Boaz did have a romantic eye toward Ruth, he may not have considered it appropriate to act while she's still potentially even in her period of grieving. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now, especially when I was a youth pastor, I heard this kind of passage pointed to a lot. When dating ethics were fresh on the mind, especially of young single people, young girls would ask, "Is it okay for me to ask the guy out? Is it okay for the woman to initiate uh, that kind of uh, uh, that kind of interaction with a guy in the beginning of a dating relationship, or maybe even propose to the man for marriage after they've been dating for a while, or or be the one to pay for his dinner, those kind of things? Those are the kind of questions. Is that okay? Is that a good thing?" And I had actually heard people pers- point to this exact. Same passage. It's okay for a woman to pursue the man. Look, Ruth did it! Well, notice that the real story here is not that a headstrong young woman saw a man she wanted and took the initiative. The real story is of a young woman who obeys every word of what her mother says without question. Young ladies, I would suggest letting that be the application point for you in this story more than the Pursue the man. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. So she did exactly, she said, I'll do what you say, and then she did it. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So not only does she do what's instructed, but she, she does all the parts and pieces of it. She waits until his heart was merry. Now, he almost certainly had some kind of wine. That would be very likely to have there. But this word for merry is the exact same word used in the first verse of this chapter. I'll show you that again. We did that earlier. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. Same exact word. Well with you. Merry with you. No reason to think that this is drunkenness on behalf of Boaz. Wait till he's drunk. Well, no. Otherwise, Ruth would be saying, I can't wait for you to have a drunk life. You know, that's not the idea. The the idea is, I want good for you. His heart is merry. He's finished all of his work. He's had a glass of wine. He's laying down to sleep. He's ready for another day. This plus the fact that the exchange that happens next is not that of a man shaking off a fresh hangover, but it's coherent interaction between two virtuous characters. I think there's no reason to see this as drunkenness, just in case you might be wondering about that verse. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. First, he startled now, for the record, I think that the uncovering his feet is what led to being startled. I think that's part of what the reasoning behind that was. He, she didn't do anything other than uncover his feet. And in the cold of the night, he starts tossing a turn and realizing it. In fact, the word for startled here is the same word for trembled or shivered, potentially out of cold. And so he, he wakes up in the middle of the night. He looks down, whoa, whoa, whoa what's, who are you? It was dark enough out that he couldn't see her. He couldn't recognize who it was. And she just says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And that's it. That's all Ruth says in this whole interaction. That's all we get. She must have rehearsed that for hours while she's waiting there for him to wake up. It's hard not to be reminded what Boaz says in chapter 2. If you're reading this through faster than the pace we're going this morning, you might have noticed back in chapter 2, Boaz blesses Ruth And he uses a very similar language. He says, The Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same word. Ruth makes it known that she seeks for that reward to be given through Boaz. She goes, You cover me with your wings. Now it's important to note that the word wings also means corner of a garment. So when she says, he says wings here, she says wings there, it's the same idea. It's a covering, it's a security, it's a protection. It's a euphemism for marriage. I want to show you the same wording used in Ezekiel 16. About wings covering over somebody. That's so what it says in Ezekiel 16.8, talking about talking God speaking to Israel. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment, the wing, over you and covered your nakedness. No, didn't uncover nakedness, which is sexual. Covered nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I want to read for you a quote from Daniel Block. He's a new a commentator on the book of Ruth. He wrote in the New American Commentary on this. He says, The gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment was a symbolic act, which according to Near Eastern custom signified the establishment of a new relationship and the symbolic declaration of the husband to provide for the sustenance of the future wife. Now, technically, she does not propose to him. Technically, she asks him to propose to her. She doesn't cover him with a garment. She says, cover me. Cover me with your garment. Provide for me. Take me under your care. Watch out for me. And the clarity of her request. Well, it might still be weird to us. It still is a weird way for them to choose to do that. It's it's weird that that these Near Easterners did it that way. But her request is crystal clear. To Boaz, and that's made clear to us in the next verse. And he said, this is his response. She says, cover me with your wing. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not, be, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Worthy woman. Boaz blesses her for her kindness. What kindness? Well, he says that her first kindness was that she did not abandon her mother-in-law and stepped in to be with her and provide for her. And now this new kindness is that she has not run after a younger man, whether poor or rich, but that she has sought Boaz. The man who had been a blessing for her now says that he is the one receiving the blessing from her. You're being kind to me now, Ruth. His response, now he will serve her. Look at that. I will do for you all that you ask. That's it. That's the answer. I will do for you all that you ask. I do. Yes, I will marry you. And he says... Do not fear, I'll do for, all the, for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You might remember that in chapter 2, verse 1, it was said of Boaz that he was a worthy man. Same word. There's another beautiful place in the Old Testament where the same word is applied to a woman, it's in Proverbs 31. Same word for excellent here. An excellent wife, a worthy wife, who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. So when Boaz says thank you, it's not just like, a, well, I needed a wife. It's, no, you are, a, you are, a, you are one that who, who is more precious than jewels. You are an excellent woman, a worthy woman. And everyone knows it about you. Before anyone took notice of her kindness, Back in chapter 1, it was just her and her mother-in-law. Ruth's worthiness is shown in her devotion to her mother-in-law. By now, she has developed a reputation for being a woman of noble character. So as Ruth was the hero of the first chapter, and as Boaz, the hero of the second, they are a worthy pair. And just a bookmark for future weeks, we'd expect them to have worthy children and now it is true that I am a redeemer, Boaz says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Kinsman redeemer rules. You have to let the guy who's closer in line have the first chance to, to offer himself in marriage to her. And, there was another relative. He's unnamed in this story, but he's more closely related. Next week, we'll see a bit about the story, what plays out with him. But Naomi likely knew that there was another man closer. It wasn't just find the first one. It was, there was something about Boaz, the kindness given to him, the, the Yahweh worshiper in him, perhaps. It was, it was the fact that he, uh, he was there and, and willing to take care of them and just be a blessing to them. This is why in chapter 2, verse 20... Naomi says of Boaz, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. She knows there's others, but he's one of them. The law was about a brother, not a close relative. Deuteronomy 25 talks about leveret marriage. The law was not a specific you-must law. It was more of a cultural obligation. Brothers, take care of your family in such a way. And it was also in the context of fellow Israelites, not necessarily those from pagan nations. There's only one obstacle so far in the way of this union. The redeemer that is nearer to Ruth may be the one who steps in. But he says, I will redeem you. One way or another, Ruth is getting married. When she goes home to her mother-in-law, one way or the other, someone's going to marry her. Someone's going to take care of her. Someone's going to watch out for her while well, she wanted for it to be Boaz. She knew that the entire course of her life was going to be changed because of this event. And they both lie down until morning. Do you imagine they slept much? I'm not implying anything weird. I'm saying like, lying awake, blink, 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 thinking about, oh, I didn't, oh, she wants to, America. okay, I gotta talk to this guy and this guy, and she's sitting there. I have to tell my mother-in-law about this. <laughs> they sit there until the morning, God shows up. I want to land the plane here with just one, one point to keep in mind. Just a wrap, something to keep in mind as you go on this week. There are so many times in our lives when it feels like we're just hanging on by a thread. Like I said, you're, you're getting ready to go into that important meeting or to see the doctor or, or going for a job interview or college application, something like that. You're getting ready to go do it, and, and you, you know it's so tentative. It feels like a house of cards, like everything is just right here. Just don't fall, just... So vulnerable. And Old Testament Israel, if you read the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again how many times it comes down to a single bottleneck that if this one person did one thing different, the whole thing would be obliterated. That if the stone that came out of David's sling went slightly to the right, just, just a little bit, no Israel, no redemption, no Jesus. And yet God had a plan. He was in control, down to all the moments. And his redemptive plan will not be thwarted. He's watching out for you. In your life now, he's, he means to do good for you, even if it's not what you had in mind. His good might not be what you're thinking. You might be praying for this. You are be praying for college aid. And he goes, nope, trust me, this, this is where. Who knows what he's going to do. But when you're in a hard place and you don't know what to do, just do the next right thing. Naomi, Ruth, they just set their heart to work hard to see what would happen and trusted that God would provide. Let's pray that you can do the same. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for stories like this, these amazing stories that are so pivotal and so critical. Lord, we thank you of the way that these stories tell us, even some of the nitty-gritty, even some of the parts, of the way we should think about some of the characters and the people. Father, we're grateful that it's been recorded and has come down to us throughout the centuries, the millennia, that we may see them and, and rejoice again. And the stories of these people it would be an encouragement for us. Father, this morning, I pray for two encouragements for those who are hearing this. Number one, that we would we'd grow in our understanding of these stories. And even if there's areas of here where there's still gray and, and fuzziness and misunderstanding, that it might compel people to open the Bible and look word by word to understand what has happened. Lord, I believe that's worshipful and honoring to you. It's good for our soul to do that. Father, in second, I pray that you would be an encouragement to our people through this word, that we would see that it wasn't just chance, happenstance. It wasn't just like a, whew, so lucky. This all worked out. Lord, you worked through these people. You worked through Ruth and her refusal to abandon her mother-in-law. You worked through Naomi in giving this instruction to her daughter-in-law who would listen. Father, you worked through Boaz, who in the goodness of his heart and the worthiness of his actions was a man who was one who would provide well for these women and give a happy ending. But God, we know that this redemptive story was the one that you had written. I pray that we can see ourselves written into the redemptive story of history that somehow, in some way, you use all of our lives, all of our moments, even the pivotal ones, the, the biggest ones upon which everything in our life hinge for your good and for our good. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see that, trust in that, that when we come to those moments again, we might say, Lord, you are in control and move forward with that in mind. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.